So, we've been working through the essentials. Last week we started a two-part series on the Word of God. And we're continuing on in that today. Part two. So, I'm going to run through this real quickly. This is a message out of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And make sure that you pass the pad and the pen to the next person, but you only say the words. Don't look on each other's piece of paper, otherwise it will ruin the entire thing. Um, This morning as we're looking at this idea, this is a, a, a paramount thought. Because it's going to get a little cerebral. We're going to give you a lot of information today. And in doing so, and in looking at what the veracity of Scripture is, and in looking at the understanding of how Scripture works, that's kind of my responsibility. So it's going to feel like a little bit like a class. But I want to encourage you this morning that as much as we're giving you knowledge, we're going to finish with a thought that really unlocks the power of what Scripture is all about. So hang with me. And if we do well, we'll give you ten minutes at the end again to ask Pastor, how do real life questions get answered out of Scripture? That's what this verse is about. Either Scripture is just a collection of writings... And it's just information. And it's a, it's a great anthology. It's great literature. Or it's very different than anything else that's been written. I would argue it's very different. This verse, the writer, the author of Hebrews, would argue it's very different than anything else that exists. So let's not lose sight of this idea that Scripture changes lives. That's the main point. So this morning, I'm going to review real quickly as to where we've been. The title of the message is Treasure Map to God. The idea here is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. This is a a very important and stridently important verse when it comes to understanding how Scripture works. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means it's been inspired by God. It came from God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you understand, just even based off of this verse, why Scripture is essential to our walk in connection with God? Why Scripture is that map to unlocking who God is? So, let's see if Scripture holds to this idea if it can back up what Paul says. We started last week with talking about a couple questions. Number one, how do we get the Scriptures? Now I have all that in black. If you weren't here last week, tune in on the web and you can download the sermon and watch it live and get the answer to all those. We also talked about how to view the Scriptures. How how do you look at the Scriptures as a whole? This is a big collection of books and and narratives and poetry and, and history and prophecy So how do you look at all that and how does all of that work and why are there so many differences? And and we talked a little bit about that as well. Then we talked about translation. Uh, My my graphic last week was a low-res graphic, so I changed it up this week, so hopefully you can read a little bit. And we talked a little bit about your pastor's personal preference on a translation. 
and as some in my life group would say, the authorized version is right here, the ESV. There you go, that's the authorized version. But when it comes to translation, how do you know which Bible to use? And sometimes that tends to be a fuel for individuals who are critics of Scripture saying, you have so many translations, that creates so many interpretations, therefore there's just no, there's no strength to it. That's where you start hearing these comments about there's so many contradictions and so many translations. Why would I believe in something like that when it's so different from one to the next to the next? We're going to look at that this morning and help you understand why you have so many translations. Let me give you a quick breakdown as to how to look at it. I relate this in the idea or concept of receiving an email. All right? And when you write an email, you know exactly what you want to communicate, don't you? Have you ever had somebody misunderstand what you wrote in an email? Have you ever thought, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it was very clear. Okay? Folks, that's, that's, it's not a complete understanding. It's not comprehensive. But that's a real good way to understand why we have problems with Scripture. Look at it in that context that God is communicating to you. He gave inspired words and the, the authenticity and the infallibility, in other words, it cannot fail because it came from God. It's true. There are no, there are no strident contradictions, right? That, that is challenged continually because they look at this and they say, why do you have so many translations? That makes sense, right? That's some good logical thinking. There's a reason why. And so on two ends of the spectrum, you have what's called word for word. Now, have you ever had somebody take your email and, and they repeat back to you or they respond back to you and you're like, did you miss that whole third sentence? Right? That would kind of be people who operate with thought for thought. And I shared with you a little bit, we've got what the message out here, that the message would take John 3.16 and would say something like, uh, there was this dude in heaven and yo, he didn't want to cast any shade on you so... He was, he was sending his main dude down to, you know, okay? That's kind of like the message. And what the message wants to do is it wants to make it so relevant and easy to understand that people don't have this block from the these, thou's, thus, and thereforeths, right? Which comes down here on this end. I won't really show which one, but it's the KJV. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. Here's the problem. When you get into that, you miss the meaning of words. Isn't that a big narrative out there in, in the political ether right now? What do words mean? It's really important when it comes to eternity and to our soul that we know exactly what God is saying. Exactly what God is saying. This is kind of fun. I'm watching people laugh over here as they're being told what's going on. I can't wait to find out what this is looking like. So uh, yesterday I saw on ChristianPost.com the ESV is coming out with a 2016 revised version. And it says, Biblical scholars troubled by new version. I encourage you to go look and read that and see why. And here's why you have different translations. There are people that want to change what God said in the email. 
because it doesn't fit their narrative. That's where you start getting into this. When you go thought for thought, it's nebulous. And I can kind of do what I want with it, right? When you send an email, do you want the person who's receiving to just kind of interpret it however they want? You're trying to communicate something specific. So I lean more this way for good reason, and so should you. But you need to find a translation that makes sense, that's easy to read and understand. We'll get into that in just a minute. All right, where, where have we stopped? Margie. Margie, come, come forward, please. Let me see where we're at. Have you written yours down? Yes. May I please see it? <laughs> okay. That's close. That's close. Um, I'm, gonna have to, I'm glad I stopped us right now. Thank you. Please have a seat. We're not continuing. Um, uh, Deanna, did you do this? Can I see your post-it, please? Wow, we're going to keep going backwards here. <laughs> okay, that's good. Let me see here. Let me see here. Okay. All right. We're going to stop with Tom. <laughs> that's all I'm saying about that right now. <laughs> I can't argue the written word. That may be our statement today. So we talked about translation. We'll get a little bit more into that in a minute. How to study the Scriptures. We talked about that last week. Again, download it. This morning we start with this idea. The power of the Scriptures. This is exciting. This goes back to that Hebrews 4 stuff. Is it You can study the Bible as literature. Anybody take that class in high school? You can study the Bible as literature and it has no power. You're, just, you're approaching it as just another story, like the Iliad or something, right? Just something out of antiquity. But it's interesting, when people have studied it that way, all of a sudden their lives change, even though they just started studying it as literary. There are those such as Lee Strobel, who through an act of what's called the science of probability, use the science of probability, that sounds pretty official stuff, right? That's like three-syllable words, I think, if I catch that right. He used the science of probability. He's an agnostic, and he approached Scripture with that. And where did he arrive? I think he's up to about six books now on why the Scriptures are true. The power of Scripture is like nothing else in our lives. So let's break this down. First of all, it's God's inspired Word illuminating men. We heard this out of 2 Peter, right? 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to go to, let's say, we'll start in verse 18. It says, and Peter's talking, he says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic Word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter is saying this about the Scripture that already exists. Now at that time, when Peter wrote this, we don't know that he probably didn't have most of the New Testament. But he had some of what was out there. Probably a lot of Paul's writings, because Peter refers to Paul's writings. He would have known about them. 
And he saw them as God's words, God's inspired word. And he says, that didn't come from man. It didn't come from someone's own interpretation. And then listen to this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 speaks to the idea of walking in the Spirit. And this is the illumination part. Have you ever been reading the Scripture and maybe that section is a little bit difficult, it's a little bit hard. Well, let's say that we're already locked into the idea that we believe that God breathed, according to Scripture, God breathed these words out to men to write down so that we can what? We can know Him. That's what Scripture is here for. But pastor, I'm not really sure how that works. I get into Scripture, I'm reading it, and it's it's all Greek to me. Right? But have you ever been in that position and suddenly the Scripture takes root like it says in Colossians? When Paul says being rooted and built up in Scripture. That suddenly something clicks and connects. And that speaks to the Romans 8 where it talks about by walking in the Spirit that the Spirit reveals these things to us that are hidden. That's illumination. And all of a sudden... This is powerful because you are interacting with God with the message that God wrote so that you can know God. That's power. That's power. God reveals Himself through Scripture. Last week I talked about the fact that this is very, very important. It's very important that we just get a macro or meta view of what the Bible is. The Scriptures are there that we might know God. Just, there you go. That is the simplest, lowest common denominator for us to understand and to wrestle with. The Scriptures are there so that we can know God. God reveals Himself, His character, His holiness, His attributes, His relationship with men and what He has done for mankind. The beginnings of the universe, the end and and the eternity and and all that's going on. And basically, it is in essence everything we need. It is that map, that treasure map to know God. That's powerful, isn't it? If you don't believe that, for those of you that are old enough in the room to use a map like a Thomas Guide, do you ever remember fighting over who was going to look at the Thomas Guide and figure out where exactly you were going? Because the other person doesn't even know how to read it. And you're a control person. And you don't want anybody else to hold that map. Because the map holds the power. Right? That's what the Word of God is. The Word of God directs us to God. Next, the Gospel. The Gospel is in the Word of God. And turn to 1 Corinthians 15. You can mark this down. I don't have it up there. I have a a different passage, but I'm going to share that. You know what? Just go to Titus. Just go to Titus. Just for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great demonstration of the Gospel. It's a complete understanding, almost in a historical level, of what the Gospel is. But if you want to know the message of the Gospel, it's really encapsulated here in Titus 3, uh, 5 through, actually I would say 7, and that's what we're going to read uh, this morning. Uh, let's start in verse 5. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our hope of eternal life. Do you know that's all you need to know about the Gospel? I would say there's some implied parts here, right? Why do we need a Savior? Why do we need a Savior? Because of our issue with sin. That's not really explicitly laid out here. But if there's washing and regeneration, what what are we washing? What are we regenerating, right? So that's where you've got to get in and understand what's actually being said. But this is a complete package. This past week, I traveled down to Los Angeles and I I told you I was interviewing with a couple churches and individuals that have counseling programs. That's maybe part of what God's leading us to for vision. Uh, I had a great opportunity because uh, the front side of my week kind of canceled out a week out. And so we have a very uh, precious place to us as a family out on Catalina Island. And no, it is not Avalon. Um, We cannot stand Avalon. But if you go just two, two nautical miles to the south, there is what's called Gallagher's Cove. And that is where a wonderful Christian camp is that um, Janine and I started counseling there almost 25 years ago. And I've been able to speak out there for years. And so I called them up and I said, would it be possible for me to come out for some prayer and fasting for a couple days? There was nobody in the camp. It's the first time I've ever experienced that. And so I got to go out there and, and just get away and, and do some prayer and fasting for the things that we're doing here as a church. And then because the other appointment canceled, I had nothing to do Wednesday night when I came back over. So what are you going to do? You're going to go worship at Angel Stadium, right? <laughs> because it's a godly stadium. Many of you know the story of this ball. And I don't have time to go over it, but it is an anointed ball. Um, it's a very fishy ball. Uh, some of you don't know the story of when I used to take a bunch of men with their sons out to Arizona for spring training. It was a great dads and, and um, son and, and daughters. We had some gals come towards the end there. And my son, in about his eighth year of going, he, he knew all the ropes on how to get signatures from players. And there was one particular year where we had about 70 dads with their kids out there. And our favorite player was Tim Salmon, who's a believer. And it was Tim's last year. He was trying to make the team. It was going to be our last time to maybe get a signature from him. And here he comes. He's done with his four innings. and He's walking down to this tunnel. And all the kids run with their balls. And so Dylan kept having one kid after another after another get a signature from Tim. He kept sacrificing to make sure that these other boys got their signatures. And then he hands his ball to Tim. And I have this picture. And Tim's got the ball like this. And they blew the buzzer saying he had to stop so that everybody would sit down because the next inning was starting. And he hands the ball back to Dylan. And it's the saddest picture ever of Dylan going, And then another picture I have is my arm around my son trying to comfort him and console him. It was a great, great opportunity. And then his uncle bought him like a $400 jersey to make him feel better. And uh, I can't compete with that. All I can do is pray with my son. And, uh, and I told Dylan, I said, I will get you that signature. 
I'm going to pray that it happens. I spent $50 to stalk Tim Salmon. I found his address. I did this whole collage of pictures of what happened. And I said, I know it's not your fault, but in complete sympathy and helping a dad realize a promise for a son, could you, it never made it to him. You know, these guys all have personal assistants, and it just got torn up, and I never heard anything. And I just kept praying, Lord, I walked out of the stadium Wednesday night, and who's doing the live broadcast? Tim Salmon. And I just stand there, and I just start praying. Oh, Jesus. I've been a good boy. (laughs) You know it's not for me. It's for my son. I want to have integrity in front of my son. Could you, and, and then there's all these people. Because you know, like when you watch a Warriors thing, they're out there and there's all these people screaming. It was like that, right? And I'm like, there's going to be all these people. I'm never, it's not, and everybody just left. It was like the Red Sea. And I was Moses. Everybody left. And so I just walk over and he's just walking up. And I said, hey, Tim, could I get a, a, a signature from my son? He's like, oh yeah, your son. Uh-huh, yeah. So he signs it and I say, could you put your favorite verse on it? And he goes, oh, yeah, that'd be really cool. Titus 3, 5, and 6. Titus 3, 5, and 6. So, a trout hit it, a salmon signed it, and I caught it. I want to be on the front cover of Field and Stream. That's all I know. The Gospel is here. If the Gospel stays on these pages, it's worthless. We know what the Gospel is because God has revealed it and it's been recorded here in Scripture that we might know it, that it might have what? Power to transform lives. It's life-changing. Acts 8, 34-39. There's power in this. Let's turn there. This is a great story. And uh, Philip must be teaching... Philip must have been carried away to our children's ministry today, Magda. Is that true? So Philip has been carried away, just like this Philip, in Acts chapter 8. This is a great story. Some of you know it. And it's about the Ethiopian who was searching for God. Now what's fantastic about this is there's a key word here. So Philip is brought by the Spirit to speak to this person who's searching for God. They're out in the desert of Judea. And the Spirit leads Philip to this person that's searching for God. Pretty cool stuff. But what does Philip use? His experiences with Jesus? Does he talk a lot about that? Does he speak to the miracles that he has seen? Let's look at it. Verse 34 of chapter 8 of Acts. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? He's asking questions. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and what? Beginning with Scripture. Beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The Gospel. Now, Philip was there. Philip walked with Jesus, didn't he? He could have just said, here is what I've experienced. But where did he start? 
the Scriptures. Why? Because there's greater power in these words being inspired and breathed by God than by any personal testimony, even by those that walked with Christ. And we'll, we'll give some connection to that in a minute. It was life-changing. What happened? And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way. What? When Philip ran into him, he was what? Questioning. There's power in Scripture to change a life. Amen? Amen. And where did we get that? I could have used a bunch of other real-life testimonies, but I just went to Scripture so you can see it. So secondly today, the reliability of the Scriptures. This is where we're going to get into some very interesting information. And what I would encourage you to do is if it goes too fast, please email me later throughout the week because there's so, this, is, this is a semester-long class in theology, this section is. Okay, so I can't give it due, due diligence. I'm going to give you some flavorings. But we're going to have fun with it. I did not forget about our little coded message. All right, Tom? We're, we're going to get to it. The reliability of Scripture. Well, when you compare this with other documents, it holds up greatly. I'm not going to get into all the other documents. I'm just going to go one place. You're going to hear about Herodotus. He's a, he's a Roman historian, and you're going to hear about Josephus in a moment. Josephus was a Roman historian as well, but he was of Jewish descent. And the Romans captured him during some of the, the, the battles that were happening throughout the Holy Land, um, just after Christ. And they basically said, either we kill you, or you record all that we do. And part of the problems with the works of Josephus is, if you're recording the reality of what happened, you've got to be careful if you want to still live, right? You never paint Caesar in a bad light. So some of his works are, are kind of spurious. We, don't de- we definitely don't put them online with, with God-inspired Scripture. But it's history. Do you know that just even between the works of Josephus and Herodotus, there are huge discrepancies? And you can understand that, right? That when two people look at an event, they're going to record different things or they're going to see it differently. When we look at all of what we have from antiquity, any, any historian or scholar, classical scholar will tell you that if they're honest, that how the Scripture holds up when put to the test archaeologically, culturally, systematically, and all that it requires to do so, it separates itself from any other work written. And there's probably a lot of different ways to explain that, but that's what I want to emphasize right now to you. It is unique in contrast to everything else that is written out there that we put as truth. That we hold dear to this is who this person was, this is what this person did. Textual criticism. This is the part where you're going to start sleeping and drooling off to the side like I did in my classes. I'm, I'm not going to get into this deep because I will lose you. You will start drooling 
All you need to know is that when you get into this and trying to figure out what, it's, what the email is really saying, scholars know how to read this in its original language, in its original tone. And it is a science. And trying to understand that... <laughs> I love the theme music. That's awesome. You know when that happens, there's like 14 things that run through your head that you've been trained to do when a cell phone goes off, right? That wasn't one of them. (laughs) Just want you to know that. Textual criticism, let's get back to it. The idea is this, that that you've got to understand how the language, that's why I'm talking about word for word in translations, right? You have to understand, so there are scholars that what they do is there's what's called low criticism and high criticism. There's, there's all this stuff. And it, all that means is that experts in language and history look at this and say, how does it hold up? For instance, the book of Hebrews. How many have been taught that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews? Okay. A lot of people say that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Do you know that because of one of these forms of criticism, that some would say, no, it doesn't pass the, the author stylistic test. This is one of the ways that we're able to determine or help determine, was this letter really written? Remember I talked about the Gospel of Thomas last, last week, right? It didn't pass. And that's one of the things about uh, textual criticism. Is it's a filter used to see, based off of historic ancient text, does this stuff really hold up? So just know that what we have uh, in our modern Bible has gone through excruciating testing. And there are those that have, now here's where you get into a problem, there are those that have an agenda, either to one way or the other. Some would say that they have a God agenda, some would say they have an agnostic agenda. And so you try as much as you can so that you have good practice in this, but sometimes presupposition still comes in and affects how you criticize what you're looking at. You have an inclination one way or the other, and so sometimes you get into things that we just, we can't say with 100% assured, assuredness, and so when you get into that situation, a predisposition kind of takes over, and, and you say, well, I think it means this. And so our, our scriptures, when it comes to this idea of reliability, the translations that we list to you that were up on the screen that are more towards word for word, they're reliable. They're reliable. And, and we'll get to that in a second. This is not a back massager. It looks like one. Maybe it looks like an ancient pillow that goes right underneath your neck. This is very important. So let me transition out of textual criticism. Scholars in the coming out of the modern era in the in the 19th century it became very popular to swing because of science it became very popular to disavow scripture and faith all of that happened because science just blossomed and there were those that had that agenda i was telling you about right and John 3, self-evident, men love darkness rather than light, and so they run from the light, that there was an effort to make sure that we don't marry science with Scripture. By the way, 
very, very easy to do this. The Bible's not written as a science book. Understand that. It's not written as a science book. It shouldn't be used as a science textbook. But it's very easy to marry those things. But people with agendas said, no, we're discovering things through modern science, and we're going we're gonna to postulate this theory because we kind of think people will buy it, and it kind of makes some sense. One of the things that happened in this is histories. We did a study on the book of Daniel, right? Do you remember any of those kings' names? Name some. Throw it out. Nebuch- Good old Nebu. Uh, yeah, I love that guy. Artaxerxes. What'd you say? Belshazzar. Do we speak in tongues here? What's going on there? Okay. Xerxes, right. So Babylonian, Assyrian. The modern scholars, and I say modern, it was a time period that goes all the way back to the late 19th century. They went after this because nowhere in Babylonian or Assyrian history does the name Belshazzar show up. And so they, how many of you have ever heard that there is a later date for Daniel, almost in the New Testament period? And so they're saying the truth of Daniel and all those prophecies, toss it out. Right? We're talking about reliability of scriptures. They say toss it out because there's no way this really happened this way. There is no Belshazzar in the entire histories of the Babylonians, Assyrians, on and on, or, or Persians. And they kept good histories. So this is just one example of how this happens. It happens over and over and over. Guess what they found? They found that thing. This is called the, let's see if I can say it, Nabinidus Cylinder. How many of you can read Sanskrit? There about the fourth line, it says this. <laughs> Trust me, I, I translated it, it's great. <laughs> it took me like ten minutes. It says, may it be that I, Nabinidus, king of Babylon, never fail you. Now, we don't have Nabinidus listed in Scripture, but he's listed all over Babylonian history. Babylonian history never mentions Belshazzar. What's fascinating is this. He says, and may my firstborn Belshazzar worship you with all of his heart. See, you would think that the scientific community would then admit that they were wrong? No. By the way, this wasn't the only cylinder. There were three cylinders found, and there's other information that explains in depth what you would read out of Daniel 5. Let me see if I included that here. I did not. Um, But just understand that in Daniel 5, you have this account of Belshazzar and the writing, the hand of God appearing and writing on the wall. And... um, and the queen calls for him to calm down and, and not react. And you're, you're wondering where the king was. Well, they know from Cylinder 3 that he was a co-regent. That's why you don't see him listed that much in history. And kind of like, was it King Richard? Right? We remember how King Richard went out and did the, the crusades in the Holy Land. Well, he left a co-regent back in in Britain to rule. That's who Belshazzar is. 
he's back here ruling. The one that's so pronounced in the history of Babylon is the one that's out roaming the lands doing the battles. Here's how we connect that. Is at the end there of chapter 5, Belshazzar calls to all the people and that's where the queen comes in and says, I know somebody who can interpret this. And he says, if there's anybody that can interpret this, he will be made the third ruler in all the kingdom. That never made sense until they found this cylinder. So what is the reliability? You know, there are those that want to put down the Scripture and say it's not reliable. And their tests keep failing. Their findings keep failing. And and we'll get into that in just a minute. Sufficiency. This Scripture is profitable. We use the word sufficient, but you saw it in 2 Timothy that it is profitable. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. It equips us for every good work. It's reliable for that. It's reliable to understand who God is and to know who God is and to pursue that. We see that it's self-evident. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 um, is, is kind of what we were, we, we were referring to there. That It talks about in the end days there will be godlessness. There will be lovers of money. There will be revilers. There will be those who lie. There will be those who murder. There will be, does that sound like it's real? Right. And there will be those who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid them. Does that sound real? Now, that's not self-evident. That's just looking at the reality of what's going on around us. It was prophetic, and we see that happening. But you're taking an external situation, and you're applying it here. Let me help you out with one more of those. Acts 12, 21 through 22. This is more reliable evidence, and this is the account of Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa was an interesting character. And he was in and out of trouble with Rome all the time. But he played the political game. Kind of like what we see happening right now, where people are trying to either not align themselves and they will be punished, depending on who's elected, or people who do align themselves with someone and then they will be what? Rewarded if their person gets elected. And so Agrippa, Herod Agrippa did this with, remember this name Claudius? Okay? and Tiberius, and he lost at first, and he was thrown in jail. But then Claudius came into power, remembered Agrippa, he even made him a big chain. This is hilarious. He made him a big chain out of gold that was supposed to symbolize the chains that shackled him in jail. And, and just said, just want to give you a present, a reminder. And he made him prefect over northern Galilee, Caesarea. And what do we find in Acts? We find that Herod has gathered into the theater during a festival. Um, Some of us in this room have been in that theater in Caesarea. And it says that he put on his robes made of pure silver. It says that he was called a god. Actually, let's turn there. I can turn there. I'm right there. And I want to read this to you so that you understand the reliability of Scripture. And we're in verse 21. I'll back it up to 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, these robes of almost pure silver, it was almost like sequins, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. 
and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Wow, that's a bit draconian. Right? Who says Scripture's boring? I have my four-volume set right here of the works of Josephus. And I want to read to you what comes from Josephus. And so this is from Josephus, the Antiquities. And he writes this, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited spectacles to honor Caesar, for whose well-being he had been informed that a certain festival was being celebrated. At this festival, a great number were gathered together of principal persons of dignity and of his province. On the second day of the spectacle, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflections of the sun's ray, shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those who looked intently upon him. Do you get the idea of this picture? I mean, it, it, you're on the coast, you're right on the water as you look out from this theater, you're looking at, at the Mediterranean and there's just a ton of sunshine. There's nothing to block that. And everything looks down this way and he would have been standing down in the bottom part of the theater on a throne, a seat of honor, and a, in a sequins silver robe. It would have been so brilliant, it would have been hard to even look at him, right? Because it was so bright. It says this, Presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a, guess what he wrote? A God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced, this sounds like he wrote the King James Bible, um, hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impudence, impious flattery but he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings just as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him and fell into the deepest sorrow a severe pain arose in his belly striking with the most violent intensity he therefore looked upon his friends and said i whom you call a god am commanded presently to depart this life he knew he was going to die right then right there while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me and i who was by you called immortal am immediately to be hurried away by death and i won't bore you with the rest he dies and he dies a horrible death isn't that interesting the reliability of scriptures. Fascinating stuff. By the way, just because we've got the works of Josephus, they're not as powerful as this book. So be mindful of, of that. Let me get this arranged perfectly so it looks good. So where does that leave us? Well, Hebrews 11.6. Hopefully we answered the question on reliability. Remember, I just gave you a flavor of it, Right? When you hear all these things about different interpretations, there's contradictions, there's all these things. Folks, there are contradictions. 
Tom, would you please read what you have? Sally, would you please read your paper? Now that is that is amazing. Now that was one, two, three, four. Now here's what's amazing is God superintended this because I took a big risk doing this. <laughs> because Tom's numbers are correct. It's thirty four, twenty four, twelve. So how he but if you had it wrong, how did he get the right number? Oh, there we go. Did you hear what she just said? Now, let me help you with reliability and textual criticism. When you uncover the Scriptures, what happens is you are looking at copies of the original text. That's why we say in our doctrinal statement, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture as in its original text. We know that there are going to be slight variants. The percentages of the variants, and now we have, we have over 400,000 manuscripts that have been found recently. Over 400,000 manuscripts that date 3rd century back to almost the 1st century. They just found a manuscript. I wasn't willing to reveal this in its entirety, they just found a manuscript. Josh McDowell is all over this thing. And it's, they believe it's before the second century. They believe it was written in 80 AD. And it's a fragment of the Gospel of Mark, and it was used as paper mache on the back of an Egyptian burial mask. We keep finding manuscripts that get closer and closer to the original dates. How does that work with the reliability of your Scriptures? The King James Version was written based off of um, the Latin Vulgate and, and a couple other things that were great works. They did not have these early manuscripts. Is the King James Version a reliable translation? Yes. Yes. When you uncover earlier manuscripts, and you keep finding that the truth of the statement matches what you have, does that mean what you have is reliable? Yes. Here's the difference. 99.9998%, I'm making that up a little bit, but it's like that, of these variants, these differences, all have to do with like capitalizing something having an article like the or at or whatever, and it has no bearing or impact on the original email. Does that make sense? So when people will tell you that the Bible is filled with problems and it's not perfect, you can fully tell them you're right. And let me tell you what the scholarly work has shown. That 
99.9%, and, and the statistical odds on that, I'm going to tell you, are amazing. Are amazing. We'll close with this, and then I'm going to get to this verse. Down in Pasadena City College, a professor did an experiment on this using the science of probability. It says this, What are the odds that any, living, any man living from the day of these prophecies, speaking about the prophecies of the Old Testament that relate to the Messiah, so these prophecies down to the present time, to get this answer, we divide our 10 to the 28th power by the total number of people who have lived since the time of these prophecies. At the time this book was published, we come up with 88 billion people, or 8.8 times 10 to the 10th power. To simplify it, let's round it off to 10 to the 11th power. The odds of any one man who lived from the, uh, from the prophecies were made until the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. What does all that mean? They took eight prophecies. That's it. Just eight of the prophecies about the Messiah. And those numbers are what they came up with in order to fulfill just eight of the prophecies about the Messiah. How does that translate to you and me? Because I hate math. You ready? Can we visualize this with an illustration? Suppose we took an atheistic... I don't know why it would be an atheistic professor, but they just embellish it that way. Suppose we took an atheistic professor, blindfolded him, and covered the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Then we put a check on one of those silver dollars and mixed them up. The odds of one person fulfilling just these eight prophecies will be the same as this atheistic professor selecting the silver dollar upon which we have placed a check in his first try. That's just eight. You ready to get your minds blown? There are some 300 to 350 prophecies which were written in the Old Testament to help us identify which person is the promised Messiah. Suppose we add eight more. Not 300 or 350. Suppose we add eight more prophecies to our list and assume that their chance at being fulfilled by just one man is the same as the eight prophecies just considered. So now you're talking about 16 out of 300 to 350, right? He says those odds would be 10 to the 28th power, x10 or times 10 to the 17th power, or 1 in 10 to the 45th power. I don't get all that math. So let's visualize it. How big would a ball of silver dollars being, be using this number? Its diameter would be 30 times, 30, I get this one, 30 times the distance from the center of the earth to the sun. That's 16 prophecies. Now, is this reliable? Its power all the claims it makes are crazy. They're not crazy, but it's crazy, the probability. And if you wanted to put this down, if you wanted to stop God, which there are many who do, all you have to do is disprove this. Do you start to understand the value of what you have and the power of it and the reliability of it? Now, Tom, I hold the big test in my hand. Read those numbers. I bought this brand new. I didn't mess with it. I bought it brand new this morning. See if I remember how to do this from junior high. 24. That's what you say. And then 12. 
Let's see what the reliability is. Let's try one more time. You spin it free and you turn to the right, right? 34. Around twice. I just passed it. 24. Then you go past. Oh, that's what I didn't do. Past 34 to 12. See, it's, that's the interpretation, isn't it? You've got to get the interpretation right. The moment. You've got to be kidding me. Rich, work on that while I finish the sermon. See, that's the other part, is you've got to make sure you know how to read the Scriptures and use them properly. Folks, the point is this, is that we went from here to there. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people. And look at how much we lost. Seven people. Seven people. Think about what we have and how long it's been and how many people have wrote or written what we have now and how many people have worked on it and redacted it. And when you go back and you find a parchment or the Dead Sea Scrolls from thousands of years ago and it reads virtually the same, you start to understand the reliability of what we have. Now, In closing, I want you to understand this. Hopefully I've done a good job at explaining other than me trying to unlock that stupid lock. Hopefully I read the... Yay! Oh, it's on the back. (laughs) Which was what I wanted to do the entire time because we had a spurious writing. It was incorrect. We went to the original translation and that resulted in perfection. That was the point all along. Thank you. I'm never doing that again. Folks, to understand the magnificence of what we have and how it affects us, great. It all goes right here. Everything I just said mostly goes right here. This verse, and what I'm going to share with you, is the true power of the Word of God. And it's what's essential. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's why those who read the Scripture just to read it as a history book, they do not know God. They do not know God. It comes to being moved by God through faith. The Scripture can take you to God. Faith gives you relationship with that God you know through Scripture. For me, Philippians 4, 6-7 has been the most powerful Scripture in my life the past two years. Do you know why? You will never know why. But I will share with you right now that the reason is there are words there that spoke to my heart that gave me power over an incredible darkness. It wasn't knowledge. It was that which transposed my life. That is what is essential about this. We can talk about all the knowledge. We can talk about all the veracity. 
just like the Ethiopian eunuch, these words were inspired by God. They changed your life. No other history book will do that. This is unique. Let me close in prayer today. Thank you for being here. Pray for our elders and our wives as we go up to Hume and seek to really hear from God as we try to formulate our mission and vision statement this week. Father, we cannot thank you enough for your word. You have been very intentional in giving it to us and supplying it for us. Let us never replace it with empty and worldly philosophy. Let it not just be an exercise in intellectual gymnastics for us, but let us truly understand the power of it so that we can know You, so that we can unlock the mysteries of what it means to have relationship with You. Father, accept our gifts today, our offerings. Bless the giver. Use them for Your glory. Walk with us. Let us walk with You and seek You this week. To You be the glory, Father. Amen.